0: About to listen to a teaching from devoted women's ministry from our Bible study series on the book of Matthew. This teaching is intended to be listened to after completing the homework in your study book for this week's lesson. We're glad you're here. Grace and peace. Okay, so we are in Matthew 19 and 20 this week, and I don't know if anybody noticed that Jesus right before a teaching on marriage, um, he he led in with the unforgiving servant. I don't think that it's a coincidence, like forgive and forgive and forgive. And if you're married, um, you know, that's probably the formula you know, forgive and forgive and forgive. So I don't think it's a coincidence that that's where we ended last week. And now we're moving into verse one here this week. Now, when Je- when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and he held them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to, vor- to divorce one's life? Life, wife for any cause. So the word tested here tells us that this was not a genuine question, right? We, we can see that. Um, I do want to point out that the last time someone... Talked about divorce and remarriage and all of these things. Um, it didn't go well for him, John the Baptist, if you remember. Um, so this may not have just even been a test to see how Jesus would reply to trip him up. It very well was a setup. So if they could get him to say something, could they get the same result that they that that happened with John the Baptist? It's possible. So verse 4, he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So our homework had us go to Genesis to dive into these um, verses. Genesis 1, 27 and 28, we got the picture of... Created in the image of God, right? That they were to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion. So that's what those verses gave us. And then I want us to look at Genesis 2 21 and 20 through 23. And it says, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So then in our text, the, um, Verse 5 is a direct quote from Genesis 2:24. So verse 5 and 2:24 reads, "And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." S- verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So to build the picture of what I'm trying to build for us tonight, um, we're going to read on into Genesis 2.24 that our homework did not have us read. And um, I'm sorry, 2.25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So if you're with us with Genesis, you know that I say the word naked weird. (laughs) And you will also remember that we learned during our time together um, that the word naked there is really this picture of transparency and vulnerability and purity. There was nothing between husband and wife that was um, caused division. It was just this beautiful picture of God creating this harmony. Um, becoming one flesh together in spiritual, mental, and emotional harmony. They were naked, but unashamed. That's what the verse says for us. They were perfectly united with God, complimenting complimenting each other in their strengths and weaknesses, worshiping their creator with their existence. So really get that beautiful picture of what marriage is. Um, That is what Jesus is referring to here. So what happened? We know the fall happened, right? So verse 6b in our text tonight. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? So our homework pointed out, you should have saw Moses did not command anybody to get a divorce that our homework pointed out that it was an allowance right he allowed it so our homework had us look at deuteronomy 24 1 through 4 and i'm just going to read it for us when a man takes a wife and marries her if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of the house. And if she goes and become another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled, for then it is an abomination to the Lord. So a lot is happening here, right? We have divorces, and then she marries again, and then it shows like this willy-nilly picture of that beautiful thing that God created, and now here's what's happening. So Moses is making this allowance. Um, commentary points out for us that it is possible that the Israelites had grown accustomed to divorce through the influence of their time in Egypt. So this may have been a learned behavior. Um, if you remember back in the old Testament, he's constantly saying like, don't, don't get involved with these people, like stay. That's why, because influence is a powerful thing, right? So um, there are a few more things I want to point out in our text from Deuteronomy. So if you're not there, you can turn there if you want to. Um, We should immediately see that the text says, if she finds no favor in his eyes. We know that the fall gave man and women the ability to define good and evil for ourselves, right? And we also know that with the fall came this really skewed definition of a human definition of good and evil, right? God is the only one that has a right definition of good and evil. Most of the time, it's our um, own agendas that make us really skew that, even though we know the truth. Um... The comments, my study Bible pointed out that some of the offenses that they were talking about were like burnt food or bushy eyebrows. It literally said bushy eyebrows. So right now those are popular, so they would be okay. <laughs> but if skinny eyebrows come back in, like we're all in trouble, right? Um, but the, the one thing that I really want us to see in this text is the word indecency. And that can also be translated as uncleanliness, so um, it's nakedness, it's nudity, and it's shame. So where we had nakedness and unashamed, and that beautiful picture, now we have this um, wording indecency and this favor, and 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 so even though Moses said these things and they were good and. We, we see again and again with the, the law and how they take it and how they kind of turn it just a little bit and it becomes to fill their agenda, right? So um, this is not at all the beautiful picture of marriage, the naked and unashamed. This is naked and full of shame. This is the saddest picture of original love distorted by original sin. This is not necessarily a prescriptive teaching on divorce. And I hope that in your small group time that it was a time of um, good conversation and it was not hateful conversation and there was not a lot of opinions um, thrown out because We know that the Bible has a standard on divorce, 100%, but we also know original sin has done a number, and that divorce has affected probably each of us in this room to some degree, and I hope that we approach those hard topics with grace and love and truth. So, like I said, I think that the things Jesus teach here are very important and relevant, but... um, I hope that we do it with grace. And if your feelings were hurt tonight with hard topics or any time, Tanea taught us last week, luckily how to handle those things. So um, go to that person and tell them, tell them how you feel. So this clause in Deuteronomy was written because of the progression of sin. Commentary points out that a certificate in this marriage would have would have allowed for remarriage. We had that conversation today, and I like so if they were divorced and they were put out, like wouldn't their life be horrible? You know, like you you it wasn't good to be a single woman. But um, this our our homework pointed out that it probably helped protect the women in this case. Um, so if hardness of heart is comes from the progression of sin. Let's look at that at verse eight. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. The NLT says, but it's not what God originally intended. So the phrase hardness of heart can be defined as closing, choosing to close oneself off completely to God's truth. And God allows us to choose sin, he sometimes even gives men over to their desires, right? Um, but it's not what he intended. This was not the original design. So in chapter five, Jesus taught that looking at a woman was considered adultery. This is another spin-off of their, um, what portion of the law can I keep and still be okay, right? This is what we would call abuse of grace. And it's finding a loophole and what does, what does Jesus say to their hypocrisy in this moment? He says in verse 9, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So it's just this mic drop, right? So just to be clear, sexual immorality is not a have to for divorce. Um, Jesus is in the marriage redeeming business. And when we invite Jesus into a broken marriage and both parties consent, miracles do take place. God is a redeeming God. And I just want to encourage anybody in the room. um, I grew up and... um, Sexual immorality was a large part of my young adult life. Um, It's a generational curse. It was modeled for me. Um, I didn't have healthy relationships growing up and that bled into my marriage um, to some degree. And I just wanna encourage anybody who has hurts or um, maybe has been in this place in their marriage. Um, Luckily, years ago when My sin bled into my marriage. My husband saw my value over my sin. Um, I'm blessed to have that testimony, but I can tell you that um, God has redeemed my marriage in a most beautiful way. And we are married 20 years um, in May, and he's wonderful and fabulous. And um, I am a testimony of just because there is infidelity in a marriage, um, All of us can um, trust in Jesus to redeem. So I believe we received from this section a very vivid picture of creation, what God intended, and the fall, the destruction of men's sin in marriage, in all of our, in all of our relationships, really. So I want you to keep that in your mind as we move forward. So in verse 10, we get the disciples' response. And he said to him, if Peter says, right, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Did I say, I don't, the disciples said, I don't know. It probably was Peter though, right? Like all rash, right? So, um, and I, as I was reading it, I'm asking myself, like, do they respond this way because Jesus has had such a high standard for marriage? And yes, I mean, the standard is high. Or are they seeing this human condition as Jesus is teaching and talking and, you know, it's really the ugliness of the human condition and it's just insanely sad that this is their response right verse 11 but he said to them not everyone can receive the saying but only those to whom it is it is given Um, to only those who God helps right so in our own simple state marriage cannot thrive it may survive, but it will never, ever be the glorious gift that God intended it to be. And really picture that, like, ministry together, repentance together, um, confession together, worshiping God together, surrendering your life and your will together, like that beautiful picture of what God intended. Um, it is those who God helps and even in all of our sinfulness, like, but God. So then Jesus drops another bomb. Not marrying isn't quite the answer either, right? Verse 12, for there are eunuchs who have been made so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So if you don't know what a eunuch is, it is one who is incapacitated either for marriage or for having children. Um, And another definition is one who voluntarily abstains from marriage. So this is the one Jesus is talking about here. He's not calling anybody to take matters into their own hands and um, I want to read to us uh, what I found just for us to get a little bit more of a grasp on here so commentary says among the Jews marriage was not held a thing indifferent or at their own liberty to choose or refuse but a binding command so think about that Clark quotes from an ancient Jewish writing known as the Gemara that it is forbidden a man to be without a wife because it is written. It is not good for a man to be alone. And whosoever gives not himself to generation and multiplying is all one with a murderer. He is though he is diminished from the image of God. So... Here we have this picture, like Jesus is talking about eunuchs. We have this beautiful thing that you can abstain from marriage, right? For Jesus, for the the better will of the kingdom. And we have teaching like, and let me just plug, like your commentary matters because that's what this is. This is Jewish commentary on some of the law and some of the teaching. And if you're not careful, you end up with really weird skewed things these things should line up with the word of god and i mean imagine those who were naturally incapacitated to having children and how they felt in this they were able to fruitful you know what i mean it's just again like that really um crazy picture But if we go to the New Testament, we see that Paul had something to say on this matter, too. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 2 tells us now, Concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife or each woman her own husband. So here, clearly, marriage was not a command, right? Paul is giving this... Um, statement here. And then again, in 1 Corinthians 7, 6 through 10, he says, Now as a concession, not a command, these are Paul's words, I say this, I wish that all were as myself, but each has his own gift from God, right? Just like what we just read up there. (laughs) Um, One of one kind and one another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. So culture, our culture has this really out of whack. And so does, I mean, we can see like nothing is new under the sun, right? We have the teachings of this and then we have today. What do we, what do we really think about? Like when you get older, you're going to grow up, you're going to get married, you're going to have kids. Um, Marriage is not our life goal. It's not. As Paul points out, but a gift from God. One that should be entered into with the highest of respect, right? We all agree on that. It's too willy-nilly nowadays. It was too willy-nilly back then. Like, it wasn't something that was being um, guarded and protected. And you know what I'm saying. Um, But it's not our life goal. (coughs) Douglas O'Donnell says the kingdom of heaven is so important that it should seem perfectly normal if someone would want to give it to give up marriage for it Mm -hmm. marriage is beautiful but it is not our goal in the kingdom our goal is not to remain single our goal is to accept the gifts that God has given us and trust he knows what is best our goal is to die to our own way Our hurts and rejections are most often the things that God uses for his glory. We must surrender the ideas of our culture and our own desires to live lives that worship God, married or single. Worship God. Love God. That is our goal. So verses 13 through 15 Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked the people. When y'all read that, or like they just hate children. What is wrong with them? But I really, as I was processing and thinking about it, I was thinking about like, think about the people that were being brought to Jesus in the crowds and they're just coming in and it's the demon possessed. It's the sick. It's the blind. It's the lame. And I can totally relate here where I'm like, they're children and they're fine. They can sleep on the floor. They don't even need a fluffy bed. Like kids don't, like they're fine, right? But, here we're seeing a Jesus response and he says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. You guys, we must never stop anyone coming to Jesus, regardless if we think that their need is great or we think that their need is less. Um, those babies need Jesus just the same as the sick and the blind and the do not hinder anyone from coming to Jesus. That's what we're seeing here in the section and it's so beautiful verses 16 through 30, the rich young man, and um, I believe it's Mark, ruler, so That gives us a little more insight there. Verse 16, And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? Verse 17, And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. God is good, right? If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus, really, his reply is like, okay, so if you want to do this, this your way, here's what you need to do, right? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you should honor your father and mon- mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's important to put, um, point out that all these commandments have to do with other people, right? Right. And the young man said to him, all this, all these I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect. Jesus is saying you lack perfection. <laughs> All men do we're going back to the first chapter right like the fall the evil the horrible if you lack you lack perfection. perfection go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me so he's saying give what you possess to the poor those people that you've been taking so well care of as you're you know keeping all the commands and you're the good old God, like go care for them Go put your money where your mouth is. Get give rid of everything you have and go give it to the poor. But I want us to be very, very sure tonight that we don't leave this with because Jesus is giving him a camp command, right? Go sell what you have, give it to the poor. And if we're not careful, we will wrongly interpret this as do more. Mm-hmm. Want less. Be good servants. So by requesting this, Jesus was pointing out that the law couldn't save. What Jesus is really saying is you can do nothing. Mm -hmm. This guy didn't ask how to be a better disciple, because no doubt, as a disciple, we're called to do and be like Jesus. But this guy asked, what do I do to get eternal life? We do nothing, Jesus does everything. Mm When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So he actually went away poor. He went away with a void in his heart that no earthly possession could ever fill. If what the men were doing with the marriage clause was abuse of grace, this is rejection of grace. Verse 23, And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter to the kingdom of heaven. So to be very clear, many of the Old Testament men, the um, foundation of the faith in the Old Testament, we're wealthy guys abraham we have a list of his wealth in genesis david solomon they were kings. solomon was the most wealthy man ever so we know this isn't a monetary issue right 24 again i tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of god so what he's talking about here is a self-reliant person that stands right in front of Jesus and wants to know what he can do to live forever. This guy had all the testimony of the miracles. Um, he calls Jesus teacher, right? So he probably had heard Jesus teach with the authority that we've seen um, through the whole book of Matthew. Um And Jesus says to the rich young ruler, follow me, and you will have treasure in heaven. Jesus is saying, follow me. I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? So in the book of John 1, we get an account of the call of the disciples to follow Jesus. And this was before all the miracles and all the teachings went down, and Jesus didn't have this huge um, crowd following. And what was their response? we have found the messiah andrew says it philip says it not only do they follow but they proclaim so we have this contrast um and really what what we need to get from the section is our ability our inability to do anything for salvation right if the first section showed us that we are sinners and that we make a mess of everything. This section shows us that there is nothing that we can do for our own salvation, right? So when the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished saying, who then can be saved? So we get the same type of response that we got from verse 10. And again, I want us to look at Jesus's response. Verse 26, but Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, with God, all things are possible. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within his people, marriage can be honored, hearts can be changed, and we can give up everything Jesus commands us to. And it's different for all of us, right? Yours, your command to what you need to give up isn't what I need to give up necessarily, or yours, or yours. It's all different. And when God dwells within us, we can be obedient. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, drudging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Revelations 1... 1- Four through 8 tells us that those washed in the blood of Jesus will become kings and priests to his, Jesus's, God and Father. We will have privileged status and power. We will have privileged access to the presence of God. The book of Revelation also shows us John's vision of the throne room where the 24 elders um, Oh, I just lost my place. Cast their crowns before the throne and say, "Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And I think the point is that we should see the value of Jesus and live for him now. Giving up status and privilege in his life to get to heaven and do exactly the same thing. Who will care what they have when they have privileged access to God? Mm -hmm. Verse 29, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. So Jesus isn't necessarily calling all of us to give up our people, right? Um, But he does ask us and command us to give up what we think it should look like verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and last will be first. So I want to note that this line opens up our next section, section, and it also closes it. So we'll talk a little bit more about that line in verse 16. So um, this section on rewards, it points out that the apostles will have heavenly rewards, and we will too, right? Um, Status and privilege, but It really, I really think he wants us to see that um, in the presence of God, it won't matter. His presence will be better than anything. So moving on. Chapter 20. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So the master is the father. And these verses show us that the father is not limited by and exists outside of time. God has no limits. He knows what is best and acts accordingly. God is perfect perfect and pure and without sin. And when evening came, verse 8, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, be each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, these, worked, these last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. So God's method of rewarding is not compar- to, comparable to our practice of giving rewards. God's method of rewarding is not comparable to our practice of giving rewards. His ways are incomprehensible. Verse 13, but he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to the last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what is do what I chose with what belongs to me or do you begrudge my generosity? So we're getting this picture of the sovereignty of God, right? He does everything according to his plan and his pleasure. And in our flesh, we not only question his measures of grace, because that's what we're talking about right here, like um, forgiveness and the, the works and all of the entry into heaven. And they didn't like when you really go into commentary, that's what... We're talking about salvation here. And and is it fair that one, you know, on his deathbed gets to go to heaven when one has done all the work? Like, we're back to status again, right? But I, I would argue that we do this with every aspect of God. In our flesh, we question his measure of grace, but we also question his measure of mercy, his love, his justice, and even his wrath. When we don't think somebody gets what they deserve, we question God. When we feel like somebody got forgiven and they shouldn't have been forgiven, we question God's sovereignty. So this whole section is this picture of this is God's universe and um, he'll do with it what he wants. What does Francis Chan always says, like when you get your own universe, like let me know, you can, you can do with whatever you want. So verse 16, we're back to this um, phrase, so the last will be first and the first last. And if we go back to the book of Revelation, it tells us that Jesus is the first and the last. So the last will be first and the first will be last and the first last, Jesus is the first, and the last. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the God of all eternity. The rich young ruler didn't see Jesus as the first and the last. The disciples did, earning them heavenly reward. A last mindset recognizes Jesus as the beginning, creation, and the end, the redeemer. God sees none of us with greater importance But how do we all see him? That's the question. Jesus is the first, Jesus is the richest, and Jesus traded his throne. He traded his throne for our sake, he became poor, so that by his poverty, we would become rich. When we grumble like those in the parable, we are demanding payment from the one who paid our debt. That's terrifying. And it's not where I want to sit, but a lot of times it is where I sit when I question and I measure and I wonder. Um, God's word tells us grace is a gift that no man can boast. It's God's right to forgive astronomical debts like we saw last week and demand that we do the same. And it's also his right to pay whoever he wants, whatever he wants, and demand that we not only respect it, but he invites us in to rejoice in it. If there's anything as a believer that we get to rest in, it's the sovereignty of God. It's knowing that God will right all the wrongs. It's knowing that no matter what happens and what shakes our life, God is in control. Like the sovereignty of God is a thing that we stand on. And we are invited to rejoice in it. And I wanna ask, are you? Because I know that I've been dead for a while and I haven't been rejoicing in um, that, in the fact that God holds everything and he's paid my way and he's made my way. And we're we're getting into that. Um, I'm jumping ahead actually. So this section right here should redefine what we think of status and rewards. And in light of the fall, what status do we deserve? Zero. We deserve zero, right? So Jesus foretells his death a third time in verses 17 through 19. So in light of all of that, and now verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way, he said to them, See, we are going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. And I want to ask us tonight, do we really understand the cost to be chosen, to be saved, to be given a place in heaven? Does it bring us to our knees? Does reading those verses is knowing that he died for you and he paid all of your debt and sometimes we're freaking brats. Do we get it? And as if I'm answering the question, sometimes we just don't get it, right? A mother's request, verses 20 through 34. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Is there anything more childlike than this scene? These men are standing behind their mother, waiting to get the answer on status. It really is just so crazy. But what we see here is a picture of spiritual immaturity, right? It's not childlike faith like Jesus had in mind. You know, they're like totally going way. Um, Not, this is not what he wanted. But this is a picture of spiritual immaturity. It's a misunderstanding of what Jesus keeps saying. And... Then we see in verse 22, Jesus answers, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. And as I was reading this, I am totally thinking about this mother. Because as Jesus says, like, are you able to do? We know that... um, When Jesus is born and Simeon in the temple, remember they take Jesus to be dedicated and he looks at Mary and he says, and yeah, he says, a sword will pierce your soul. And then we know, The crucifixion, she's there and she's watching him being tortured and um, dying the worst death that we can even imagine. And this is what this mother, like this is your wish, like this is what you want. It really is just a mind blowing image when you break it down like that. So Jesus said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my father. So, as disciples, we're called to live and die, right? Um, like Christ. But we also must remember that the plan of redemption is God's plan. And that it is our sins that sent Jesus to the cross. And these men sin who are asking for this status. Like, this is the plan of redemption. And it's already set. And it's set into eternity. And um, Jesus is going to die for the sins of man. And I think if we will just keep that in our mind, we will have a proper place of humility where these men aren't coming from there. So 24. And when the 10 heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. So they were angry. So I've never felt more in company than I have been slowing down to look at these men and their journey through the whole book of Matthew, right? Um, their spiritual journey, they get it and then they don't get it at all, right? Like they are grasping some teachings. Jesus has broken down some stuff. And I do believe, like, they're grasping, just like me and you, as we come into this place and we're learning and we're relearning and we're unlearning all of those things that we've talked about through Matthew. But they also don't get it at all. Mindy shared this with me today, and it's the funniest. And if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Can you see? What? Okay. Uh, okay, Justice Jonah was... The Son of Man (sighs) is about to be delivered to the hands of men. Uh, (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, uh, so the son of man will be in the heart of the earth for three days. Oh, a fish. I like to fish. I'm going to die, All right? I'm going to literally die. And in three days, I'm going to come back to life. Do you hear what I'm saying? I'm going to literally die. Oh, <laughs> I totally get it now. I, I totally get it. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, just, okay, let's just circle back to the fish part. The man. <laughs> so that is the Christian walk, right? Like, we get it and i believe there's times in this book of matthew that they're getting it and we're seeing like this they're responding and they're seeing people in need and they're feeding them and that you know they're going to jesus and they're seeing all these things and then they're just totally not getting it and i can relate so much because i know in my walk i can be like i'm doing good and i'm getting it and i hear you god and that's my heart and it's what it, and then i'm just not getting it so it is the walk of the christian life Um, Okay, so they weren't getting it. And then everybody's angry, right? And I think a lot of times, as Jesus is breaking down, um, shaking our walls, and... uh, We're trying to hash it out. What is our response a lot of time? And I think a lot of time our response is anger and or jealousy. And I think it's what we see here in this picture. They're not really grasping it. They're not really understanding. And they want the status, but they don't really know. You know what I mean? It's like all of this. And their response is they think God's holding out on them by you know, telling James and John, like you you are gonna drink the cup, but like they don't even know what they're asking for. And um, I think a lot of times it's like that with us. Um, We think maybe God is holding out on us because we're just not understanding his character and who he is and what he has for each of us individually, which goes back to just the simplicity of what he's saying here in 25. Um, But Jesus called them to him and said, "'You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and the great ones exercise authority over them it shall not be so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever must be among you must be your slave even as the son of man came not to serve not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so it's simple he makes it simple we simply show up and we serve and we're slaves to the cause of Christ but also to one another and that does away with the need for status. It levels the playing field. If each of us just show up and serve, we quit worrying about like the big calling that God has in our lives and how it's going to be fulfilled. Like those little tiny acts of obedience just add up and then the big picture comes together and then we get to be in awe of who God is and what he's doing in our lives. So it's okay not to understand. It's okay. Um, Just don't get all crazy about it. (laughs) So... Um, That's all I have. I'm going to pray. God, we just come to you and we just thank you for this time and the space. God, I just thank you for the things that you've shown me about myself in this lesson. And I just ask that you um, guide me, Holy Spirit, into deeper humility, into um, seeing myself as a at seeing myself as part of the problem, as part of the fall, as being selfish and, um, ungrateful sometimes. And knowing that we do take your original design that is beautiful and wonderful, and we have skewed it and we have, um, hurt one another. And God, I just, I don't want that to be my heart. I want my heart to be, um, one of surrender and one of servant of, like I want a servant's heart, God, and I want that for each and every one of us here that our ministry would thrive because we are real and we're willing to say, yes, we are messed up, but God, you do the impossible. When you come into your people and when we submit to what you have for us, God, you do the impossible and I'm praying that over us as we go out this week. May we rely on your power. May, may we may, may we put away privilege and status and measuring and comparison and all the things that we do in our flesh, God. May we just walk in the Spirit and um, just move boldly into small acts of obedience, God. May we just break it down like that so it doesn't seem overwhelming. And so we can just live in your joy and and just do your works, God. We want to live in your joy. We want to um, just see change within each and every one of us and in our families and in our workplaces, God, just use us. And um, God, may we all do it in, in great humility. We love you. We honor you. Um, we worship you. And it is in your name we pray. Amen.